Haggai 1, verses 12 to 15. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of Jehovah their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as Jehovah their God had sent him. And the people did fear before Jehovah. Then spake Haggai, Jehovah's messenger, and Jehovah's message unto the people, saying, I am with you, saith Jehovah. And Jehovah stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the remnant of the people. And they all came and worked on the house of Jehovah of hosts, their God. In the four and twentieth day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king, the work began. Merciful God, our Father, we do thank you for your word. And Lord, this is an inspiring word. It's an encouraging word. It's a word we ought to take to heart and learn from. Lord, this is a word that was greatly uh, encouraging to the nation Judah. How they heard your word, Lord, and they believed, they listened, and they obeyed. No, Lord, we see that from this day forth in the life of Judah, though we won't concentrate too much on it, they began to work in your kingdom. And the wall began at this time and the wall was completed. And your name was exalted and you became famous in the region through your people who were obedient to the call of the Lord. Through the prophet Haggai. And so Lord I pray. Might we too. Become of renown. Not because of our own doing. But because of the work we we have done in your kingdom. And that your name would be great. It would be glorified. It would be made famous. Through all the earth. By your people. Through the word of God. We ask this in your glorious and wonderful name. The name of Jesus Christ who is Lord, Saviour. Master and King. Amen. Just to recap, we have Judah, the southerly kingdom, and some people have returned to their homeland from Babylon, where they were exiled. And they returned because of the providence of God, who raised up a man called Cyrus, a king. And because Cyrus Cyrus learned... In the book of Proverbs and the books of of the Jews that they were to build the temple. And so they returned. But we discovered last week that they returned. And what happened after a very short time is 18 months maybe, a year. They started preparing to build. But those who had remained behind in Judah, they complained because their offer to help on the wall was rejected. And so they wrote letters to to the princes and the kings and the governors. And soon the work was stopped, sadly. And it didn't just stop for a day or a month or a year, but for 18 years or 17 years to be precise. And here was God's people. They should surely have seen the most amazing thing had happened. Cyrus, a pagan, moved by God... The Spirit of God. To allow God's people to return to Jerusalem. This was an astounding episode. This was an amazing incident. Or event really. 
And here they've returned and they've given free passage to return. But now, after a few complaints, the work has stopped. And their persistence just fades. And we remember last week how they were, they were found to be building their homes, paneling their homes, so their homes were warm and comfortable and without draft and without dustiness seeping through their walls. And they built, they worked hard. That's what we learned last week. They worked hard, but sadly, they were working for themselves. They planted, but they did not reap a harvest. Their vineyards didn't give suitable grapes to produce good wine. Their pockets had holes in them, and they could not do well. So they did not prosper in simple terms. And so this leftovers, as one writer has put it, the leftovers of Judah... Certainly not the strongest amount of people and not the wisest and not the most noble had stopped the work. And so God sees the work on his temple, on his house, has come to an end. And we said last week, if God, who is all-powerful and mighty and, and, and righteous, could have come in and really punished Judah... Maybe they deserved, as one of the rabbis said, it was an age where we deserved righteously to go back into exile. And God could have done that. He could have, in His providence, raised up another after Cyrus or changed the heart of the, of the nation of Media Persia so that they would come back and reclaim their prize of Jews and take them back to Babylon or them by then Media Persia. But God didn't do that. And remember last week, I said that the question that was raised, if not now, when? When are you going to build the wall? If not now, and their excuse is next year, we'll start next year. And isn't that so often the case with the church and with Christians? Next year. And the question remains with us, if not now, when? So God's sending of Haggai, we need to see as a gracious Gracious act of God, summoning Judah out of their slackness, dealing with his people graciously, not punishing them, no judgment, no catastrophe upon the nation, but rather drawing them out through the words of Haggai. Come, my people, come and, and be, be uh, restored to the work that you've been given. And we, we need to remind ourselves that the reason they've come out of Babylon, which was then overtaken by the Medo-Persians, the reason they've come out of there, is because God has brought them to do a work. He didn't want to send them back to build paneled houses. They knew that. They came back and immediately they started to plan to build a wall. But as quickly as they began, so they were stopped. And for 18 years it must have gone around their minds. Surely God brought us back for this purpose. And surely there were some who said, what are we doing? But the voice of self-interest was too loud. And they had not done what God had called them to do. They were not regarded as outwardly uh, wicked. It was not a generation that we read Haggai saying they are, they are uh, notorious or that they are opposed to God. But they just hadn't got their priorities right. They were slothful in God's work. Not because they were lazy, but because they didn't apply their minds to what God had for them. They were apathetic in reality to the work of the kingdom. And they were not actively engaged in the work 
which God had called him to undertake. But God is extremely gracious to his people and slow to anger and abounding with loving kindness. And we see this so evident in the prophet Haggai. In fact, reading Haggai, one can only but but question those who suggest that in the Old Testament it's a picture of a wrathful God and in the New Testament a picture of a loving God. I can only say whoever suggests that has read neither Testament. I've seen nothing like the New Testament for, for the wrath of God. We do not see hell explained as in Revelation in the Old Testament. What about Ananias and Sapphira? Just for a small lie, they, they are completely destroyed. What about Judas? That doesn't speak to me of a gracious, kind grandfather God that so many want to portray in the New Testament. But let's go to the Old Testament. Here we find Judah fully deserving of annihilation. They have been slack. They have not built on God's wall. The very purpose he brought them out of of Babylon, the very purpose he raised up Cyrus and Darius and all the others involved. And so we need to consider the situation and see the gracious hand of God upon Judah by sending the prophet Haggai. So we need to recognize ultimately and overall, Haggai was a gracious gift to the nation Judah. You know, sometimes I can remember on phone calls with, with Harry, we would talk about ministry. And we'd envy men who are those kind of men, they just enigmatic. I don't want to use charismatic in the wrong word, but charismatic and enigmatic. You know, they just draw people to them. They, they, they're like a light and, 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 and insects. I, I don't mean that badly. I mean that in a good way. They just draw people to them. They have the, the ability to encourage people and get people working and doing things. And I admire men like that. Others like us, we, we have to work hard to get people to do things. I'm blessed here because that has not been the case. But you know what it's like? Some people just have, what do we call it, the gift of the gab? I don't know. Just a, a gift of, of their personality, God, which is God-given, and, and they're just able to get people going. And I just look at Haggai, and this is one of them. Haggai's like that. He's an amazing gift to Judah. And so we need to look at three elements I want to look at regarding Haggai's words to Israel. Or to Judah rather. And the first one is. When God speaks in the case of Haggai to the people. The one thing they recognize. And we need to recognize when God puts something on our hearts. Is who the source is. God is the source of Haggai's words. And he has come not to. Judah in this junction just to show his mighty power and tremendous miracles. No, he comes in a way that is different. One could quite understand if he came in power and stunned the nation into submission with a, with a 9-11 or, or, a, or a fire down in, in, in Neisner and maybe floods that would absolutely shock us from north to south. I can understand God coming and stunning a nation. As they deserved. They thoroughly deserved it. But God doesn't do that. We see Haggai. And what is Haggai called to do? Is he called to come and prophesy doom upon the nation? No. We don't see it. 
Is he called to come and warn them if they don't change their ways? Then God will send another prophet who will prophesy doom. No, he doesn't do that. Haggai is the messenger of the moment and he comes to them and he draws them out of their slothfulness in the most amazing way. So often in the scriptures you, you hear of a prophet speaking and you, you follow a few verses or a chapter later and you, and you read that the people just weren't obedient, especially a prophet like Jeremiah. He spoke to the people. They wouldn't listen. I don't know if you know the setting of Jeremiah. They, they, they are faced with an oncoming enemy and uh, they're weak as a nation. And so there are those in the nation, they say, let's go and make peace with the Egyptians and we'll go down to and make an accord with the Egyptians and they'll come and fight for us. And Jeremiah says, no, you don't go to Egypt. Well, there, where then, uh, Jeremiah? No, you're going into captivity. This is just before the captivity. No, 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 that doesn't make sense. You know, if we make uh, an accord with Egypt, we can win this war. No. When or not, you must go into captivity. And, and, and the, the Jews are upset and they're angry and they stone him and throw him in jail and they, they spit on him. And, and that's why he's called uh, you know, the sad prophet in, in some cases or, or the weeping prophet. Because his life is, is constant battery and constant persecution for his words. He says, no, you must go into captivity in Babylon. In fact, he says, as much as this, he says, if you don't go into captivity into Babylon, if you go down to Egypt, you will die in Egypt. And guess what? Those that went into captivity in Babylon, did they die in Babylon? No, they came back. Seventy years later, they returned. And so Jeremiah was criticized because he was telling them to go into captivity. And here comes Haggai, after the captivity, what we call post-exilic prophet. Jeremiah was a pre-exilic prophet. And... Haggai has a different approach. And, and as Haggai speaks to the people, we discover something very interesting. We find that the people are humbled. It reminds me of Samuel 1 Samuel 3, 9. Speak, Lord, for your servant listens. And that's what we see here. Along comes Haggai, the prophet. And yes, the people feared God. There was a fear amongst them. We read that and that is true. But they didn't fear the words of Haggai. They didn't fear the coming of Haggai. They, they listened to Haggai. And so firstly we realize that there's such an important aspect when God speaks to us through the scriptures or through any means. We have to be listening. We have to really listen. You know, if someone, uh, George Barner did, did a little bit of an exercise. He took Christians on average and compared their listening capabilities with their wives and with people in the church. And the average Christian of those he interviewed, I think 3,000 or something, he, he rated them. And the average Christian's listening ability was somewhere around about 60%. So whether it was at home or in the church, people didn't really listen. And then he went to the world, into business, and to non-Christian homes. And the same amount, he discovered, their listening ability was about 4% less. Christians don't listen an awful lot more than the world. Then he did something interesting. He took scriptures, 
different scriptures to these same people in the, in the second round of, of interviews. And he read it to them and asked them quickly, what is the key, after he had read it, he said, what's the key thought that comes to mind? And they jotted down. And he discovered that in listening to God's word, this exact same percentage, only 60% actually listened to what he was reading. Now here's the thing. If we just apply those logistics, and I know logistics are manipulated and twisted, and he wasn't even attempting to do that just to simply find out how well Christians listen, both at home, in church, and ultimately to God. And there was no difference between home, church, and God. It all panned out plus minus round about that 60%. I think home was a bit less actually, church was a bit more, and God was a bit less again. If we listen 60% of the time to God, we might think we're doing well. But 40% of the time, we're not. That's quite frightening, isn't it? Can you imagine a church making decisions, but they're only listening to God 40% of the time? Imagine going to your scriptures, reading the scriptures, but only taking out 60% and leaving 40% as just disappearing into the air. The 1689 Confession of Faith uses an interesting term uh, regarding hearing God's word. It says that, that we should frame it in this way, the conscionable hearing of God's word. And I battled with that word, conscionable hearing of God's word. There we go. And I wondered why they use such a term as rather hearing with your conscience or, or applying your conscious uh, thoughts to it. But it has, it's because it has a slightly different meaning, especially then. We don't use that word today. It means the effect upon your conscience. So listening in this manner of conscionability is the way it affects your conscience. But it can't affect your conscience if you haven't listened. If you're only listening 60% of the time, let's say 40% of your conscience is not being affected. So when the word of God is being read or preached, explained accurately, it's meant to touch our consciousness. But if God's people aren't listening, there's the first problem. And shouldn't it be that if we recognize the source of Scripture, the source from which it comes, we should be raised to this aspect of conscionable hearing the word of God. That we listen so we can apply it to our minds. And certainly in Judah, in this day, they listened in that way. They listened to what God's servant was saying. But they didn't stop there. They went on from listening to obeying God's word. And they didn't look for excuses or try to justify their 17 years of, a, of procrastination and, and disregard for the temple of God. They heard the word of God through the prophet Haggai. They listened to the word and they obeyed the word. There was what one writer says, a humble acceptance of the word of God. Now the second thing besides listening that I want to, to highlight is the graciousness with which God deals with his people. 
In the first part of Haggai, God begins to address the people in an unusual manner, suggesting that these people are not my people. In other words, God is, as it were, putting some distance between them because they have made it clear. They, that in a sense, they are not His people. His people busy themselves, He says, about making sure their own houses are comfortable, but they have done nothing to my temple. They have left the work on my temple undone. And yet by... He starts off by using the term, these people. He doesn't say my people. So often we see in scripture, my people, my people, my people. If my people will hear me, if my people will turn from their wicked ways. God uses it all the time. But in in the case of Haggai, he says, these people. It's almost as though, you know, us and them, there's a distance there. You know, I think if someone was saying to you and you're in a group there and they turn to their friends and say, you know, these people, you say, Hey, aren't we not friends? Are we not part of the church? Why are you calling us these people? But God does that with, with Judah. He said, these people. And by the end of the chapter, what did we find God doing in our text this evening? He's not saying these people. What is he saying? I'm with you. It's, it's, a, it's a movement of drawing close to them. Why? Because firstly, they started to listen. And I want to suggest, for starters, And when we put our minds to listening to God, seeking to hear God through the word of God, through godly counsel in our lives, through the grace of preaching and teaching, it rouses God. It rouses God. They were, what Sam Waldron says, they were engaged in, Inconscionable hearing of the word of God. And straight away, God shows his gentleness and kindness. He turns to his people. And there is an immediate follow-up as God gives his second message to them from the prophet Haggai saying, I tell them this, I am with them. I am with them. And so we see there's a sense where God is gracious through his word. I am with them. No longer these people. They are now my people. I am their God and they are my people. That's not said there, but it's certainly implied when he says, I am with them. Sam Waldron says this as well. How ready God is to show grace and mercy. He goes on. He loves these big words. This, he says, is a magnanimous blessing which God grants his people. He says, I am with you. No situation, he says, is hopeless when God is present. Well, let me put it in my own words. It's a turning point when God's people listen. It's a turning point in their lives. It's a turning point in the kingdom of God, in the church, wherever they are. Maybe at home, maybe at work, maybe in the church. Wherever you are, when you apply your mind to listen to God, it's a turning point. And then that turning point flows over to obedience. And when when obedience starts to, to flow from a person's life, it's even a greater degree of turning. Sam Waldron again. He says, when God says he's with you, there's no need to fear the enemy. No need to fear those who have arisen in opposition. No need to fear those who have engaged in letter-writing campaigns to the authority. No need to fear those in authority who would use the authority, that authority rather, to undermine not only the decree of Cyrus, but the work of the kingdom ordained by God. No need to fear them at all. Well, why not? Because I'm with you, he says. I am with you. There is nothing to fear from the face of man. And isn't this a wonderful assurance? When we labor for God, we don't labor in vain. Because the words 
of Haggai ring out, I am with you. Now think about it. God himself has assigned work to his people. He's brought them out of captivity. They have failed dismally in that work. And then God comes graciously back. He says to you, you've not been my people. You've distanced yourselves from me. You've remained aloof. Now we need to understand why God says that. What were they supposed to be building? Temple. Why? So God could dwell with them. And now he's preempting that dwelling with them by saying, I'm with you already. Do you see that? So it's a wonderful uh, grace that God is showing them. You haven't built a temple. I can't dwell in my temple. My house is, is, is in ruins. You can't expect me to be with you. You need to build a temple. But God says, no, I'm with you already. Long before they, they built the temple. Only as they start to build the temple. As they start to build the walls. I am with you. He could have come and said, what are you doing? You're not doing the work I assigned you. What would happen in a business situation? I know we might have people in, been in jobs for 18 years and never done a stitch of work. But the day they discovered, okay, now you can start. <laughs> I didn't think so. <laughs> There's the door. Take your jacket and if you don't have one, I'll give you mine. But you leave. God comes to them and says, I brought you here. On an assignment. I brought you. I've paid your, your um, travel expenses. Whatever you want to call it. And you've just not done the job. Go back to Babylon. No. I'm with you. Because you see they've started to listen. And so their confidence is renewed in God. And in the mercy and grace of God. And that's the third element I want to f- emphasize. Maybe if I can take a passage uh, from Philippians. God is working in us both to will and to do. And that's what God's doing through Haggai. He's coming and he's saying, I'm working in you both to will and to do. Let's ask the next question. So they build a wall at God's command. What benefit is that to them? Or they build a temple rather at God's command. What benefit is it to them to build a temple? I am with you. He will be present. He will be there with them. What other benefit? Now they can worship God. They can come into the temple and they can truly uh, fill their lives with worship. They can offer their offerings. What would what happened while they were in Babylon? They they, they couldn't continue to make their offerings. Someone suggested that 70 years, and, and they use the 70 times 7 and forgiveness and all that. 70 years, not one single sin was atoned for amongst the Judeans. Think about that. For 70 years, their sins built up. And they came back to, the, to build a temple so that they can continue with the atonement, the offering of, of, of the sacrificial lamb in, in the temple. But guess what happened? 70 years became 87 years. Then they still had to build a temple. And there was another bunch of years. 90 years plus a build-up of their sins. It weighed, would have weighed heavily on the conscience of the people. Here we are, 
we're free. We're out of Babylon. We're in in Judah. We're, We're in Jerusalem. But our sins aren't atoned for. That's a scary thought. Imagine if you, if we were religious and you had to, um, and isn't this what happens in some beliefs? You've got to say confession just before you die. And so there's no priest around to hear your confession. And you're lying there dying, fearing not death itself, but the fact that the priest hasn't heard your confession. Because you haven't confessed your sins in two months or two years or twenty years. And you lie there in absolute fear when in fact all you needed to do is go to God because your sins have been atoned for. Well, that was Judah. They would have been lying. Any Jewish man that was busy dying, he would have died without his sins atoned for. And yes, it wasn't a permanent atonement. We know that. But at least to suffer one year's uh, curse is better than 90 or 70. But can you imagine being in Judah's shoes? Coming back with great enthusiasm to build on the temple. And now decades later, maybe you're one of those who wanted to build. But your voice is weak and you're outnumbered and nothing happened. And you sit there and you have this nagging thought at the back of your mind. I ought to do something about it. I ought to do something about it. And then you start to agree with those around you. Well, maybe it's not the right time. Well, that is until Haggai steps into the arena and he challenges your conscience. You listen and you obey. But what has changed? Have the difficulties changed? Has the opposition changed? Has the governor changed? Where the obstacles that were there 18 years or 17 years before that? What about those who opposed the building? Have they moved on? No, they are still there. What about your resources? Do you still have to raise resources? Yes, you still have to. And we read about that last week. Just go into the mountains and cut the trees. Nothing's changed. There's nothing that we can see in history or in scripture that identifies any major change. There hasn't been an influx of skilled laborers, uh, you know, or, or immigrants coming to for cheap labor. Nothing's changed. Resources are the same. Opposition is the same. Well, no. Something has changed, hasn't it? The hearts of the people have changed. The hearts of the people have changed. Through the word of the, of the Lord, through his prophet Agai. I like what one writer says. The word of God has captured their hearts and captivated their imaginations. Their hearts have been changed. Listen to verse 13 through 14, the end of the passage. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatil, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. Who is stirring the people? Haggai? No. God, the spirit of the Lord. Through the preaching of the prophet Haggai. You know, sometimes you read this and you think, poor old Haggai, he's there preaching. And, uh, you know, they don't listen to Haggai. But God independently comes and stirs the spirit of the people. By his spirit, stirs the people. No, they are stirred to the preaching of Haggai. Through the word that he brings to them. That's how they are stirred. You know, the same thing applies in the church. I don't think we need a prophet to come and stir us. 
We need the prophetic word of God to stir us. And maybe to stir one another by simply speaking scripture to another person. You know, my friend, this is what the word of God says. And they can say, ah, yeah, yeah, you always come with a scripture. Well, forget about who said it. Look at the source of the scriptures. Just look at the source. If it's God's word, maybe you think it's out of season. Well, that's fine. Let's find a word that is in season. And then you listen to that word and the source is God. None other but God. Haggai is simply a conduit for God's word. He stirs up the hearts of the leaders. And we're not told specifically he stirs up the hearts of the people, the remnant. I have no doubt that as the, the, the hearts of the leaders are stirred, so the hearts of the remnant are stirred. First the leaders, then the remnant. We know what the scripture says in Isaiah. Like priest, like people. Isn't that so? You find a slothful leader, you'll find a slothful church. But he who stirs up the remnant of the people, God's people, is God. And their hearts are stirred by the preaching of God's word through the prophet Haggai. Well, we need to conclude at some point in time. And I think we can take comfort from this. Maybe we need to ask ourselves, God hasn't taken me from Babylon to Judah and Jerusalem. God's brought me from somewhere or sometime. 2011, 2012, and here I am in 2017. What has changed? Nothing out there. What must change? Something in here. What has changed? Have we more resources? We might do, we might not have. That's not the point. The point is Haggai's word stirs up the people. We need to be stirred up by God. And I believe that the stirring up by, of God's people begins by listening. If we're not listening, we won't be stirred. God doesn't come supernaturally, rip open your heart and give you a, a little shock of, of 240 volts so you can just suddenly be stirred up. No, God uses the word, his word, he's the source through his word. He stirs up the people. Tell the people this, I am with them. Maybe we need to really take what Samuel, one Samuel says, speak Lord, for your servant is listening. Continue Lord to speak and I will continue to listen. Show yourself Lord graciously to us. Our circumstances may not change miraculously overnight. The difficulties we face will still be there tomorrow. We may not suddenly inherit a windfall that will wipe away all our concerns. Our circumstances may be identical as they were yesterday and they will be tomorrow. But when God is at work in our hearts, we have this assurance that not even the gates of hell will prevail against Christ's church. And those who labor do not labor in vain. And so the word of Haggai spoken so long ago. is spoken to our hearts this evening. I am with you. There's a French saying and it was used on many occasions. Courage friend, the devil is dead. I want to change that. Say courage friend, God is alive. And he is with you. Let's pray. Merciful God. I thank you for your word. For your word, Lord, through your prophet Haggai. And so, Lord, we are so reminded that when we face the tempests around us, 
discouraged, feeling maybe insecure. I love the term that C.S. Lewis used, surprised by grace. Lord, to be surprised by grace. When I read this passage, I think of Judah, surprised by your grace. They expected possible judgment. What they got was mercy and grace. Show us mercy and grace, Lord, for our weaknesses, our failures, and our slothfulness, that we might have our hearts changed, stirred up for the glory of your kingdom and your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.